Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And before we <laughs> and I'm down, sleepy. I'm so sleepy. Um, and before we get into the episode, we've got a few wonderful new Patreon members to shout out. <gasps> so thank you, Teresa. Thank you, Brent. And thank you, Monica, for your support. And welcome to The Dirtbag Family. We're so happy to have you. And listeners, if you'd like to join as well, you can do so at one of our various Dirtbag tiers over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Speaking of ways to support the podcast this week, yeah. we are excited to bring you a sponsored episode courtesy of Alexander, who writes, hey, hey, could you do an episode on the BMAC and its possible connection to the migration of Indo-European speaking people into India and Iran? Are there any similarities to the world described in the Rig Veda or other early Sanskrit or Avestan sources? Thanks. Love the show. Grinny smiley face with the capital D. <laughs> hey, thank you, Alex. Uh, real talk. I have absolutely no idea what any of that means, but I suspect I'm about to learn. So Amber, enlighten me. All right. I would love to uh, try at least. So Alex says BMAC. So we are talking about, so it's not the Mark Morrison song from 1996, Return of BMAC. <laughs> Can we just compile a playlist based on these episodes and just call it Anna's never heard these. You have absolutely heard Return of the Mac. Anna's not knowingly heard these. No, so I was going to perform it for you, but (laughs) we don't have the kind of funds for that. Fair use. Fair use. So, okay. So BMAC, Uh, we're talking about the Bactria and Margiana archaeological complex. Let's get a few things straight first. Namely, what is Bactria? What is Margiana? Why does its name sound like something you would consult a psychoanalyst about? One of them sounds like a therapeutic ointment. It's bacitracin. Okay. Like, <laughs> margarine? No. <laughs> Do you use margarine often to heal your wounds? No, no but oh, I mean, I suppose one could. These are all great questions, except for that last one. <laughs> uh, so allow me to answer them. We will get to the topic of Indo Aryan movements into Western and South Asia, which is what Alex was referring to. It is a question. I promise we will do that, but it might be a little oblique because there is just so much to talk about here. So Bactria is the English derivation of a Greek name, Bactriane, which corresponds with the Bactrian endonym Bachlo. So the area generally described by the name Bactria is in Central Asia and corresponds today to most of Afghanistan, parts of Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan. So if you've got your globes out, 
head over there and then note that the southern and eastern porters of Bactria were the Hindu Kush mountain range, which kind of runs north south through Pakistan, Afghanistan and Tajikistan. And the western edge was the deserts of what's today the Kerman province of Iran. And the northern border was more or less the Amudaria River or as it's unfortunately better known, the Oxus River. That's something that you may have heard of. Yeah, um, you'll hear more of that name towards the end of this episode. Yeah. And so the Amudaria extends from the Pamir Mountains in what's today the Gordo-Badakhshan region of Tajikistan. I talked to someone who's there this morning. Interesting. Why How are they sleepy? doing? Um, well, her, her Wi-Fi wasn't great, but she was doing well. Ah, lovely. So that's, it flows up to the Aral Sea, or at least it used to flow up to the Aral Sea. Uh, that's a separate story because also the Aral Sea used to be there. And it's a much sadder story. But it's about 4,000 years later than today's story. So we'll just, mm-hmm. just leave that just there. Leave that alone. <laughs> yeah. So according to Encyclopedia Ironica, Bactria, the territory of which Bactra was the capital, originally consisted of the plain between the Hindu Kush and the Amudarya, with its string of agricultural oases dependent on water taken from the rivers of the Balkh, which is the Bactra, the Tashkorgan, Kanduz, Saripol, and Shirin Tagal rivers. That's so um, Bactria is basically just a complex of river fed oases. Margiana is also derived from a Greek name, Margiane, drawn from the old Persian name Margush, and which went by the middle Persian name Marv. So, <laughs> so I, I know it's in a totally different language, but it's just like Marv. <laughs> and this so is Marv. <laughs> Um, it was located in the Morgad River Valley, which flows from the mountains of Afghanistan uh, north into the Karakum Desert in what's today Turkmenistan, where it kind of fizzles out into the desert. Uh, but it does feed the Merv Oasis, which is the modern city of Mary. Uh, these which these is, names are great. I'm yeah, yeah. just really loving this. So um, Margiana's association with the Morgab River Valley is why it's sometimes referred to as the Morgabo Bactrian Archaeological Complex. But Mabak doesn't work as well. Yeah. (laughs) Mabak. So in both cases. (laughs) I say that a lot. (laughs) Ow, Mabak. So in both cases, the borders are a little sketchy, uh, both because the concept of borders is kind of fluid throughout human experience and also because we're trying to apply Hellenistic Greek and Persian names or definitions of, of, of space to a place inhabited many, many, many centuries earlier. In short, the Bactrian and Margiana archaeological complex is thought to extend from about the Kopedag Mountains in what's today's Iran east to the Pamir Mountains of Tajikistan and its neighbors. So, as for it being a complex, well, it's complicated. (laughs) So, I'm getting these definitions from something called Archaeology Wordsmith, which is an online dictionary that's run by uh, Barbara Ann Kipfer, who is a archaeologist and lexicographer. Oh, neat. And so she she's like trust her. the dic- yeah no very very cool so um, Kipfer def- defines complex as quote a group of artifacts and traits that regularly appear together in two or more sites within a restricted area over a period of time and which are presumed to represent an archaeological culture a complex could be a characteristic tool or type of pottery or it could be a pattern of buildings that occur together 
A complex is a chronological subdivision of different artifact types and applies a culture, whereas an assemblage is merely a collection of contemporaneous specimens, end quote. So you're like, isn't that a culture? So (laughs) the definition for culture in archaeology means a collection of archaeologically observable data. It's defined as the regularly occurring assemblage of associated artifacts and practices, such as pottery, house types, metalwork, and burial rites, and regarded in this sense as the physical expression of a particular social group. Um, so I'm not totally certain why BMAC remains a complex to this day, um, but my maybe it's just like its name, so you kind of stick with it, but... My suspicion is also that for a long, long time, we had their stuff, but we had no idea of who they were or where they were. Because you see, dear listener, since almost the beginning of archaeological exploration in Western Asia, excavators were finding materials that clearly came from somewhere else in Bronze Age sites. And so they started finding materials uh, that they couldn't really figure out where it was from but they knew it where it wasn't from and so they were finding they were finding these materials in sites as far as Tel Asmar in Iraq you know Tel Asmar it's the one with the with the with all the people who are praying and they're like <laughs> that's a big one those, yeah. those, those guys <gasps> um and in Kish and then in Or the royal tombs of Or have some of and this stuff Mahenjo-daro yeah Mahenjo-daro Harappa? down to wow down to Harappa, stuff like uh, Tepe Yahya and uh, Shahdad and Jiroft, like places like in Iran. The greatest hits list. Yeah. And all the way down to Dilmun, which is today Bahrain, and Telebrak, which is in today's United Arab Emirates. And we'll be talking about those later this month. But Wee. like all over, like over land, over mountains, over sea, stuff is all over the place. And so it's like, well, this is foreign. But where is it from? And so they wanted to know, they were trying to figure out where this stuff was coming from, but they weren't finding it. They weren't finding any signs of production or tons of it. They're just finding so one somewhere one there off. was like, just like a mysterious exporter of, yeah. of stuff. Of stuff. And so Anna, yes. what was some of this stuff? So one of the things that complicates this is... This being like this whole BMAC episode. I know you you said BMAC. Is it BMAC? Can I say BMAC? I did not say BMAC. I didn't say BMAC. Oh, maybe that was in my head. Anyway, this one of the things that complicates talking about this culture or complex so much is that we have all of this stuff, but it doesn't have much clear provenance. So we've, we've talked about this a lot on the dirt before, but provenance and context um, really define what we're able to say about a people and and their behavior and, and what their lives were like. So we're missing a ton of that information, which is why kind of in this episode, we're going to talk about so much and yet so little. <laughs> sort of the, the paradox of, of this uh, topic. So the stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm pulling this from... It's uh, the art of the Bronze Age. Southeastern Iran, Western Central Asia, and the Indus Valley. Excellent. That is where I'm pulling this from. By Holly Pittman. And Holly Pittman is a big player in... Yeah, I recognized this. that name, I think. Yeah, she's at Penn. Mm, that's why. Okay. And she 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 gave a guest lecture in Peter's class on Iran. She came she came out and, and talked to us oh, about... nice. 
uh, art <laughs> in <Okay>. Iran. <laughs> That's what it says um, on the tin. So, so you have met her. I mm-hmm. <laughs> just a million years ago, um, and uh, this was done in conjunction with the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Yes. So, um, specifically, what I'm going to be talking about is metal stuff. So, metalwork and and metal artifacts are big, big into the metal artifacts, um, and in this book. Pittman presents these artifacts by type because you can't present them by context or any other information of that nature because there isn't any. Uh, there's no recorded provenance. And so we're going to first talk about mirrors. There are a number of mirrors of this type. And so this, um, when I say type, it's a complex of material and it's given these um, kind of chronological names associated with particular sites. So here, what we're talking about is Namazga Four, which is an archaeological period in the first half of the third millennium. And so within this sort of retroactively assigned chronological period, we've got metalwork, including mirrors. Now, most of these mirrors are made of copper or some form of copper alloy, but there are a few examples in silver. So there are two types of mirrors, plain and handled I bet you can tell what the difference is between those. Mm. One kind has a handle, the other one does not. And when these mirrors do have a handle, that handle is typically in the form of something decorative. Some of them may depict female figures, but most of them seem to depict what are thought to be palm trees. So like the trunks of palm trees and they're etched with kind of a crisscross design, you know, palm trees. Thank you. you know, palm trees. We, before we started this episode, we were like, oh, there's going to be a ton of parts where we're going to have to like jump in and interpret and define. And I didn't anticipate that palm trees was one of them. <laughs> I know, but I'm so much in that. Like I need to. And also this is a bunch of visual media that we're describing <laughs> with words on a podcast. Yeah. So in the show notes, I will have not only a link to a copy of um, Holly Pittman and Edith Broda's book, but also um, <laughs> links to stuff at the Met. Yeah, which and, is a much um, better way to experience these artifacts than. But even just if you just like about them. look at some of them, you like Anna is now giving you a sense that like this is part of a, a class of of objects yeah, that is associated definitely. with the mm-hmm. as we're calling it now, Bumac. Bumac. Oh, well. So these mirrors are maybe not what you'd think of today. If if you think of the word mirror, it's not glass covered. Uh, it's not sort of silvered glass, which is what you start seeing kind of later. Um, that's not what we're seeing here. It's just very highly polished metal. So you've got a disc that's often slightly concave and it's a metal that's been, or at least it was before it became part of the archaeological record. Uh, it was very highly polished. And so you would see your reflection in it, even if it was kind of maybe a, a wobbly copper colored reflection. There are also, so the second category of object from this complex are small animal figurines. And so <laughs> uh, it's not, I mean, humans are animals too, I guess, but some of these <laughs> figurines are humans. Uh, they're people. And one that I especially loved um, the, a, a type of these figurine is the Bactrian princess um, type, which is, okay, you know those cakes that are shaped like a dome and then you stick a Barbie in it and then you frost it and it's mm-hmm. like Barbie's wearing a pretty dress. They look like that. Are you but, talking about the seated ladies? The seated lady statues? But 
you can't see what she's seated on because it's like a big floofy dress or something well, that she's she, wearing. Okay. Okay. So I was thinking of like the, the metal figurines that like, with I the mean, animals, these are metal talking, figurines, but are, it's just well, like, these are, they're, they're statuettes. Yes. In this case, I feel like I'm getting very pedantic. I'm sorry. I mean, but they're, cause they're a little bit bigger. Yes. They're, they're bigger and they're, they're carved. Um, and okay. yeah, well, they look great. Yeah. I, I just, great. I just, I just really like them. Um, but I'm going to quote directly from the book here. Quote, <laughs> animals were a favorite subject of the craftsmen of Western Central Asia. Portrayals of beasts more often wild than domesticated enliven almost every type of object found in the Bronze Age tombs, with the notable exception of ceramic vessels. End quote. I don't have any sort of explanation for why there are no enlivening animals on the ceramic vessels, but there you go. So often it is animals, as you might expect, that were very common around the area. So wild sheep, the Bactrian camel. That's the one with the two humps. And when these are these animals are depicted in these little figurines, and I do mean little. So that picture you sent me via text, is mm-hmm. that one of these figurines? Because that it, was the that size of a Gonar. bean. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, was so Gonar tiny. Debe. So most of the figurines depicted in Pittman's book are a little bit bigger than this. But Amber sent me a, an image of some of these little metal figurines that were literally the size of like my pinky fingernail. So small. Um, <laughs> so, but when they depict animals, typically in, in the slightly larger ones, because it's very difficult to get detail on something that small, um, they include features specific to the species. So on the Bactrian camels, for example, um, there often will be stylized tufts of hair above the knees of the camels, which Bactrian camels do have. And some of the figurines are uh, much more naturalistic. Some are clearly, they're all recognizable as the animal they are meant to to portray, but they are, uh, some are more stylized than others. And then the final category of object are cosmetic containers. And these are more common than just plain old figurines. Um, and they are theomorphic containers for cosmetics. So theomorphic, uh, sorry, I said, I read that wrong. Theromorphic container. Yeah. Yeah. Theromorphic containers for cosmetics. They are God shaped. They're not God shaped. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. No, I just have scribbly handwriting and I can't read it. Um, no, these are animal-shaped containers, often in the <laughs> shape of sheep, goats, or other caprids. There are the occasional domesticated bovid. Uh, there's some monkeys and there are sometimes humans. And this reminded me of nothing so much as um, these these cosmetic containers. Um, my mom has this collection of these little tchotchkes that for a while she was really into collecting. And they are little ceramic depictions of things. And then when you open that, cause it's secretly a little box and you open it and then there's a tiny ceramic something else in it. So, so she like, she has one that's a giraffe and you open it, like it folds open at the neck. And then inside the giraffe is a tiny, is it a carrot? It's something kind of unexpected. It's just sort of, these are oh, tiny fun. figurines, but wait, it's a tiny box. And inside the tiny box is another tiny thing. So it's, it's oh, got so sort fun. of, yeah. And it, it has, I think the same kind of feel as these cosmetic containers. Like they're, they're fun. They're meant as a way for the, the artisan to sort of show their skill and like, look what I can do. Yeah. Um, so these cosmetic containers, we know that they were cosmetic containers because many of them contain a residue of lead-based paste. Lead, it's good for your face, as we know from the Elizabethan era. It makes your face fall off. But then you don't have to worry about anything you don't like about your face. Silver linings. 
Yep. Lead linings, as it were. Yeah, as it were, indeed. And so like the figurines, these depictions of animals and people and monkeys, etc., are not caricatures, but in the designs, the attention is drawn to the most distinctive feature of the animal. So if an animal has horns, those horns are sort of big and decorated. Or it's like, look at the humps on this camel. Um, and so... <laughs> And the way that these work, there are two different ways that these containers were meant to hold things. In in one, there's an opening in the head. So the head opens up and then that's where the, the lead face paint goes. Or the head just comes off and it's essentially a stopper for a tube that is built into the body of the animal or mm. whatever the object is. Um, and then also among uh, these artifacts, there are a lot of decorative metal pins of the sort that would be used to fashion uh to fasten clothing together also to fashion clothing to do mm -hmm. a fashion and there are what's called glyptic art um a lot of these most of these are stamp seals but these are essentially yeah. little cast shapes in metal um and then the shapes would be distinctive to a person you'd have your own kind of personalized design and that could be stamped into clay or wax to to sort of act as your signature so there's lots of those yeah and that's the sort of stuff that was showing up in in sites elsewhere right that, like and we're being excavated elsewhere and they're like where's this coming from what is this so there's a lot of evidence that the people making these metal objects were very skilled at metallurgy which may seem kind of like a duh thing to say but I mean, if you really kind of step back and think about it, they're doing things, not just extracting ore and, you know, making molds and creating things from those molds, but they're, they're alloying different metals. They are yeah. uh, working those metals in, in really kind of complex ways. So I thought I would talk a little bit about some of the things that are mentioned in Pittman's book. And um, to do this, I'm going to have to have our first installment of this episode of Translate That Paragraph, because... Um, also, when we yes. talk about the skill involved, I want you to look at, I want you to look at the links. I always want you to look at the link, the, the show notes, but I want you to look at some of this stuff because this stuff is gorgeous. Yeah. It's like there are really axe detailed. handles that have like mythological creatures on it. Uh, there's an axe handle. There's an axe handle, um, that is a horse head and like, I'm not a horse guy, but it is so beautiful. Just like stuff that's like really. You're not a horse guy, but you're a horse axe guy, maybe, is your thing. I am a horse axe guy, that's for sure. But I want you to look at this stuff and then like just marvel at it. it with me. Go and marvel. then you can listen with me to Anna talk about this and be like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> the first part isn't that complicated. Um, it's this, this next part that I. <laughs> well, let's get to the easy stuff first. Gold extracted from bedrock in various mines differed by color. Even in ancient times, people found that pure gold was bright yellow and did not tarnish with time. Nevertheless, there was also red, white, gray, and yellow gold, which was attributed to the presence of admixtures. So stuff is it mixed in with the gold. As far back as the 3rd millennium BCE, the ancient inhabitants of Mesopotamia, the Sumerians, invented a method for gold refinement. It was rather a complicated process, later described in cuneiform clay tablets. Oh, thank goodness for them. Found in the ruins of the library of the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal, who reigned from 669 to 663 BCE. To refine gold, raw gold was mixed with lead, 
tin, salt, and barley bran and melted in clay pots. The resultant slag was absorbed by the porous walls of the pot, leaving the refined alloy of gold and silver on its bottom. The alloy was valued not less than pure gold and was known as electron or electrum in ancient literature. So Amber, you asked me to tell you what electrum was. It's an alloy of gold and silver, and it was created as kind of part of this process of refining gold. So either you could refine the gold as it was, or you could add silver during this refinement process and end up with this alloy, which was kind of a, um, maybe what you'd call white gold now. Yeah. I mean, they're, not, they're not really the same thing, but, but right. that color, that lighter. It's, yeah. It's not gold colored. It's no, I mean, it's, okay. it's a silvery gold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Is. Yep. It's that. Also, um, as you're talking to me, I think I have a friend that like specialized, uh, maybe mm-hmm. still does in mm-hmm. like metallurgy like history of like technology in mesopotamia mm-hmm. and like specifically on like metallurgy stuff because he was he's a, a visual artist before oh he was a, is this someone so that we could talk to or is this person we on? could no no okay he's great okay we could talk to him he's okay great. <laughs> well i look forward to having another metal Thanks. episode so i can reuse <laughs> that theme that i wrote for our one metal episode where i did our theme song like, <laughs> that's great for me Let's do that. Okay, here now we get right. to the complicated words. Oh man, hey, carbonate. I failed chemistry. Um, <laughs> just just to let you know, I didn't fail chemistry, and I think I understand this. So you know what? Instead of just reading this paragraph, let me start over. Okay. Historically, the first uh-huh. process of obtaining metals was basically to find lumps of ore and to fire them in a reducing atmosphere, which is where you burn something but deprive it of oxygen so that a different chemical process takes place than if you had had an oxidizing atmosphere where oxygen was involved right okay. so you can so this this is where you get for example red figure versus black figure wear yep. pottery right yep. black figure wear is fired in a reducing environment and it means that the color that appears as the clay is fired and as the glaze gets fired that deprivation of oxygen creates the black color instead of a red color. Okay. So the temperature of an open flame, so you can build up a big bonfire if you want, but typically that's not high enough to, uh, to do what you want to metal ores. So typically you need to reach at least 800 degrees Celsius, Celsius, which is super hot, super, super hot. Bonfires typically don't get much higher than 700 degrees Celsius, even if they keep burning and burning and burning. So that's not going to get you the melting heat that you want for certain types of metal. Gold actually has a pretty low melting temperature, which is why people like to work with it. But um, other metals like copper or, or tin or things like that need a higher melting temperature. Because of that, we can actually infer that ancient metallurgists didn't use open flame when they were working with metal. Instead, they had to have some sort of furnace, right? Or some sort of crucible. So it can be covered. If you're working with copper or similar metals, you can pretty much assume that they would have had some sort of furnace or crucible going on. You didn't like spongy form, huh? I don't like spongy form. It's, um... It just, like, I know that it's, like, hot metal, but it just sounds wet. (laughs) Just ah, mm. all right. We're just gonna let that hang there for a second. 
The first simple furnaces for reducing copper. So when I say reducing, again, it's heating in a covered vessel. So to reduce the oxygen in there, uh, represented a clay crucible with ore placed into a hole dug in the ground to a depth of 75 centimeters with a charcoal layer being poured above ore with ore mixed with charcoal. It was very complicated to say metal ore and then got another seal in here. Oh, (laughs) and then this is the this is the really cool part. And I remember reading. I, of course, didn't go digging for this, but (laughs) I (laughs) remembered reading about Chinese porcelain, which also needs incredibly high firing temperatures and how um, often the porcelain furnaces were were built with a long slanting tunnel. And then the furnace, like the a tunnel going up the hill or a covered pipe, basically heading up the slant of a hill and then the furnace beneath so that air traveling above the slanted tube would increase the flame temperature. Okay. And so it it works like a bellows. Yeah, exactly. It's a, but you don't need people to operate it. So it's sort of wind does the work for you. And the same thing is happening here. Metallurgists sometimes tried to arrange the melting process on a hillside or in a narrow valley with constant winds to fan fire with moving air and thus increase the flame temperature. And so, um, yeah. And so along with that little tidbit on basically showing listeners how little I understand about metallurgy, I'd like to also show you how little I understand about mirrors. <laughs> uh, We're going to do is... some scrying. <laughs> oh, let me get out my gazing ball. <sighs> no, mirrors. No, oh, this section ends with two very gross words. Great. I'm going to tell you what one of them means. God. Of widespread use were bronze mirrors used in Iran, Greece, and Egypt in the Scythian tribes, as well as in India, China, and Japan as a sacred object of the sun god. Okay, well, maybe, maybe not. But if you're going to make a mirror, the material that you're using has to meet a few requirements. It has to be reflective. so You can't have a wood mirror. It has to resist corrosion. It needs to have a high hardness. And so if you were like testing the Mohs scale of it, it would need to have a high Mohs scale. So it's like having an object's hardness is, is a, a physical material science yeah. measurement. Yeah. So this, this material had to be hard and you had to be able to polish it. It has to come to a sheen when you, when you abrade it. And so bronze was used, but also in order to kind of up each of these categories, um, often bronze with a high proportion of tin, because remember bronze is a is an alloy of copper and tin. And so high tin bronzes were used to make mirrors. So the more tin you have, the more hardness you've got, because um, copper is more malleable than tin. So if you increase the amount of tin, you're making up to a point, right? If you increase the tin too much, you're going to have a weird brittle metal and you don't want that. So modern studies of these ancient metal objects show that the bronze was homogenized. So meaning that um, it was heated and treated, heated and treated until impurities were burnt out of it, essentially. That process uh, dissolves what are called intermetallics, which are basically metals that have like metal particles that have a crystalline structure. And because of that crystalline structure, they're very brittle. And so basically you're burning those impurities out of the, out of the copper that you're using. And then you're alloying that with the right amount of tin to create the material that you want. And so if you really want to get up into those percentages, uh, we'll have an article linked in the show notes that boy, does it go into detail, but we're not going to do that here. Essentially mirrors from alloys like what was used, uh, for the BAMAC complex, <laughs> were made from two and three component alloys. So tin, copper, and then sometimes things like arsenic, which is not great for your health, but great for 
metal working. Scrape um, your bronze. Yeah. So basically these desired com- compositions and they were made using techniques of hot forging and heat treatment. The ore was refined in a forge and then the metal itself was later heat treated. And there are these two processes, which are the words that Amber really didn't like. The first of these words is annealing. And so annealing is when you heat treat a metal by heating it up to a hot, 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 white, hot heat, and then gradually let it cool down. And then there's quenching which, sorry, she's making a face at me, which is heating it up in the same way, but then plunging the metal object into water or sometimes water mixed with some mineral oil um, in order to stop. Mineral? To, to, some min- yeah, some, water? Yes, that's what mineral water is. Absolutely. <laughs> You'll be hearing some, from the folks at Evian shortly. <laughs> now, the quenching is basically what you see in every movie scene where there's a blacksmith and he goes like ding 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 yeah dunks it in a bucket and steam goes everywhere so i really don't know very much about this stuff but (laughs) we're also very deep into this episode already yeah as our professor my advisor said to me once when i was like i'm failing chemistry and he's like well no one's going to mistake you for a geochemist (laughs) (laughs) and you know what he was right he was right Right about a lot of things, but this whole time you were talking, I was like, Peter was right. I'm not. And no one's, no one's fooled. You want to have an ad? Yeah, I would love an ad. And I was, I just want to say that I think our listeners expect certain things from us, but maybe being geochemists is not one of them. So we're doing our best. We're going to get one, one star bad geochemistry. We deserve that. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. All right. Now that we know how to spot some BMAC material in the wild. Uh, it's BMAC. Uh, <laughs> We should take a step back and consider how it got to all those other sites throughout Western and South Asia, not to mention private collections that trickled into museums. Um, So let's hear from Beyond the Grave. So let's hear from Gregory Purcell. (laughs) The ghost of Gregory Purcell. (laughs) I wrote this and then I read that and I'm just like, oh, that feels weird. Um, I worked with him. Um, Who coined the phrase, yeah, um, in Oman. So he coined the phrase Middle Asian Interaction Sphere. Mice. Mice. <laughs> um, 
Not corn. To to describe this very large interconnected world of the Bronze Age. So writing for Expedition, the uh, magazine done by the Penn Museum. Thank God, Um, someone who knows what he's talking about. (laughs) Teach me, Gregory. Fussell said, quote, During the 1980s, excavations in Margiana by the Russian archaeologist Victor Sarianidi at the city of Gonardepe uncovered the plan of a complex, well-defended settlement with rich graves and the entire range of BMAC artifacts. He also found one very fine Indus stamp seal with an elephant. Judging by its style, this seal was probably made in the Indus region and brought or traded to Gonar. This site also has a great deal of ivory and some artifacts that have an Indus look to them, especially the gaming sticks or dice. Further evidence... Further evidence for trade or interaction between Margiana and the Middle and Middle Asia can be seen in all the BMAC material found throughout the Greater Indus Valley, the Iranian Plateau, and even at sites on the southern shores of the Persian Gulf, like Telebrak. Since the 1960s, excavations on the Iranian Plateau at such places as Tepe Yahya, Shari Sokta, Shahdad, and Jaroft have also added to the corpus of finds linking the Indus civilization with the BMAC and Mesopotamia. For example, the burial of a BMAC personage at Quetta and the French excavations at Sibri, a BMAC settlement, indicate that BMAC peoples traveled in the greater Indus Valley and even took up residence there. Further evidence has been identified by sifting through the reports and materials from old excavations from such places at Bampur, Khorab, Hinaman, and Nishapur in Iran, and Kulian Mehi in Pakistani Baluchistan. Now, more easily recognized, we see that each of these sites produced BMAC materials that were missed when originally published. By the end of the 20th century, it had become quite apparent that this entire region had witnessed a period of new economic and political configurations during the 3rd millennium BCE. To better understand this important phenomenon in world history and to bring it all together as a single dynamic, in 2002, I coined the term Middle Asian Interaction Sphere, or MACE, in my book, The Indus Civilization, A Contemporary Perspective. Interaction spheres have a long and distinguished history in archaeology since the concept has been useful in dealing with the sorts of long-distance interactions that the peoples of Middle Asia seem to have enjoyed. But no two interaction spheres are the same, nor are they unchanging over protracted periods of time. Archaeologists therefore continue to document the shifting dynamics of this important set of international relationships, leading the way in systematically investigating and furthering our understanding of the mace. So turns out there was tons of BMAC stuff in like BMAC spaces, but like yeah. they were so they were very um very invested. All of these sort of places and societies were sort of mutually invested um, in one another and trade and things like that. Yeah. But I really like the idea of the Middle Asian interaction sphere because it's something that extends, that sort of transcends regions because they talk a lot about like regional dynamics and interregional dynamics. But it's actually a sort of a huge portion of the world that was involved um, in trade of luxury goods, which is the kind of stuff that we've talked about already, yeah. but also in raw materials. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's always important to realize that that stuff doesn't appear in places magically, and and this stuff doesn't occur in a vacuum. You have to think of, you know, often archaeological sites seem static because we sort of get snapshots, but really 
it's just we're seeing little pieces of these large interconnected systems. And you have to think about these systems as, as living things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very important. And so for an, a look at an actual BAMAC site, let's talk more about Gonor, the site that Pasail mentions at the start of the excerpt that Amber just read. And this is from an article from 2006 in Discover. And it's fun, even if it is, oh my God, 14 years old. Yeah. Victor Sarianidi, barefoot at dawn, surveys the treeless landscape from a battered lawn chair in the Karakum desert of Turkmenistan. I won't do a Russian accent, but I really want to. The mornings here are beautiful, he says, gesturing regally with his cane, his white hair wild from sleep. No wife, no children, just the silence, God, and the ruins. Ah, the wife and kids, am I right? Where others see only sand and scrub, Sarianidi has turned up the remnants of a wealthy town protected by high walls and battlements. This barren place, a site called Gonor, was once the heart of a vast archipelago of settlements that stretched across 1,000 square miles of Central Asian plains. Although unknown to most Western scholars, this ancient civilization dates back 4,000 years to the time when the first great societies along the Nile, Tigris-Euphrates, Indus, and Yellow Rivers were flourishing. Thousands of people lived in towns like Gonar with carefully designed streets, drains, temples, and homes. To water their orchards and fields, they dug lengthy canals to channel, gl- channel glacier-fed rivers that were impervious to drought. Well, more about that in a minute. Well, <laughs> at the end of the episode. They traded with distant cities for ivory, gold, and silver, creating what may have been the first commercial link between the East and the West. They buried their dead in elaborate graves filled with fine jewelry, wheeled carts, and animal sacrifices. Then, within a few centuries, they vanished. So what Sarianidi has uncovered at Gonar is a central citadel, nearly 350 by 600 feet, surrounded by a high wall and towers, set within another vast wall with square bastions. It's a great word, bastions which in turn is surrounded by an oval wall enclosing large water basins and many buildings. Canals from the Murgab River, which once flowed nearby, provided water for drinking and irrigation. The scale and organization of this construction was unmatched in Central Asia until the Persians' arrival in the 6th century BCE. The archaeological record shows that the site was inhabited for only a few centuries. The people of Gonur may simply have followed the shifting course of the Murgab River to found new towns located to the south and west. Their descendants may have built the fabled city of Merv to the south, for millennia a key stop along the Silk Road. Warfare among the Oxus people could have undermined the fragile system of oasis farming, or nomads from the steppes may have attacked the rich settlements. Sarianidi has found evidence that extensive fires destroyed some of Gonar's central buildings and that they were never rebuilt. Whatever the cause, within a short period, Oxus settlements declined in number and size, and the Oxus pottery and jewelry styles vanished from the archaeological record. The large and square mud-brick architecture of the Gonar people may live on, however, in the clan compounds of Afghanistan and in the old caravanserais, rest stops for caravans, that dot the landscape from Syria to China. It's very evocative writing there. Oh, yeah. No, it's really, it's very fun. I like it. Um, So... Who were they? That really is the Um, question. Yeah. And so some archaeologists strongly believe that the BMAC population is closely tied to the Indo-Aryans that moved into South Asia. And among those is our friend Victor Sarianidi. From everything I've heard and definitely from everything I've read, Sarianidi seems to be what one might call 
a character. I mean, I got that from the waving the cane around. Oh, yeah, with his so bed he's, head. <laughs> he's a he's a a very very old, very very elderly. He's so old. Very extra man, and so I've um, so I've never I've never met him. Is but he still I've, alive? He is. Okay. And apparently, if you go to Gonor, he'll show you around. Wow. <laughs> like, just as sort of like a little bit of like background for, for mm-hmm. our listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, so my novel involves research in Central Asia, archaeological research in Central Asia. So I've like read a lot about the doing you know of archaeology. more about this than I do. So I know enough about BMAC, the BMAC the, the complex um i know enough about it to know that i like don't know much about it yeah. which is like a very like tough place to be but i know quite a bit about like the players um so well Needy has would approve <laughs> thanks Serenity has really strong opinions about his sites and um and even stronger opinions about his interpretations and he's a real dyson about stuff yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, they're like from a like same kind yeah, of. It's that era. Era. Yeah. And there's also something else that we should make clear to our listeners is that there's not a lot of material in English. There's a mm-hmm. lot of material in Russian, and there's a lot of material in Turkmen. Um, and some of us read like, those languages. Yeah. Unfortunately. unfortunately. Yeah. So. Um, so there's a lot of that stuff, but I, having read some of Serenity's work, he's just like, yeah, duh. Like, yeah, duh. This is what it is. And then the Aryans showed up and like ruined it. And it's like, duh. What? <laughs> so another person who um, is kind of on board with sort of the Indo-Aryan BMAC connection um, is Asko Parpola. <laughs> Love that movie. <laughs> so Asko Parpola is brother of Simo Parpola. Which I, I know that know. name. Why do I know that name? So you know that name because Simo Parpola is an Assyriologist, and he they're 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 Finnish. So ask ask uh, so, uh, yeah, I don't know like what was happening like in their home like as children to be like we want to study the like obscure ancient past. Um, but Asko like went the way of like Indus Valley stuff, and Simo went the way of Assyriology, and Simo Parpola is. Has more recently, and I don't know how seriously this proposition was made, um, suggested that Hungarian and Sumerian are related. That's right. I remember you sending me a text about that. So that, yeah, that was supposed to be a deep cuts, a deep cuts episode that was waylaid by COVID. Um, Well, the pandemic, not COVID itself. Um, So Asko Parpola is the like world's foremost expert in the Indus script. Which, which no one knows what it says. <laughs> He's the f- and might not actually be writing. <laughs> so it is, I know, I don't. The you foremost know, expert of, of very old squiggles. Everything, you know, most dead languages are undeciphered until they are. So, you know, I don't want to say that this is a fool's errand. But yeah, he is the world's foremost expert in something in a writing system that may not be a writing system. So in 2015, That's gotta be tough, though. <laughs> I know. In 2015, he published um, The Roots of Hinduism, the Early Aryans, and the Indus Civilization. The Bactria and Margiana Archaeological Complex. BMAC or Oxus civilization rose in southern Central Asia under Elamite influence. 
Elamites are in Iran. Gonar and other fortified sites of its urban phase uh, from 2500 to 1700 BCE have palaces, temples, and cemeteries with ornamented scepters, wine cups of silver and gold, and apparently also silver gold, Mm. as I learned earlier this episode, figurines Mm -hmm. and uninscribed seals with trans-Elamite iconography, decapitated horses, a BMAC chariot grave, and BMAC expansion into South Asia around 1900 BCE suggest a Sintashta Indo-Aryan takeover of power. In the Mm. impoverished post-urban phase, which I think I might be in right now, (laughs) same. Andronovo campsites surround BMAC settlements. I'll get there. Vedic texts abound in loan words, probably coming from the unknown BMAC substratum language. And chariots, a chariot seal and BMAC signal trumpets from Tepe Hisar in North, in North Iran and Syrian motifs on BMAC seals trace the trail of Indo-Aryan chariot warriors to Mitanni who ruled circa 1500 to 1300 BCE by kings bearing Indo-Aryan names, swearing oaths by Indo-Aryan gods, and spreading chariotry all over West Asia and Egypt. I think think he made a lot of that up. Backing up a little bit to talk about... Um, to talk about a couple things that are going on here. So just just to be clear, um, I'll start with the thing you talked about last, the Mitanni. So the Mitanni were in eastern Anatolia and Syria, um, which is very far from where we we're discussing today. But such is the nature of discussions of the, about the spread of Indo-Aryan populations. So there's a theory of the Indo-Aryan superstrate, which um, claims that Indo-Aryan elite imposed their culture over the Hurrians, um, who were a population in Syria, Eastern Anatolia area, which resulted in the presence of theonyms and loanwords. So people okay. who have names, we, we talked about this when we talked about Kikuli. Kikuli horse was Mitanni. He was a horse guy. He was the one that's going to get your horse. like <laughs> just Get that like, horse in shape. Turn that horse yeah. around. Yeah, turn that horse around. So uh, Parpola has suggested elsewhere, because I read like a bunch of his stuff today, in the past few days, and I was just like, what's up? <laughs> what's, what's... Parpola has suggested elsewhere that the decline of the Indus Valley civilization coincided with the arrival of BMAC populations. <laughs> when he says here, quote, BMAC expansion to South Asia around 1900 BCE suggests a Sintashta Indo-Aryan takeover of power, what he <laughs> seems to be saying is that the BMAC consisted of Sintashta Indo-Aryans who either filled or perhaps created a power vacuum in the Indus Valley. Hmm. So um, Sir Mortimer Wheeler was the one who was like, the Aryans came and wrecked everything. That's yeah. what happened to Harappa. And almost immediately, other archaeologists were like, nah. And so, <laughs> but it's sort of like stuck. That that first well, idea kind of st- Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but again, let's remember that BMAC is a complex, not necessarily a cohesive population. And the Sintashta, the Sintashta culture predates the Andronovo culture, um, which is sometimes itself considered a complex. And um, both of those lived on the steppe north of the BMAC realm. So the Andronovo, um, it's sometimes the Andronovo horizon complex culture. It's, um, they are... Um, Horse guys. They're horse guys. horse guys. So speaking of horse guys, yep. um, a new article in the Journal of Archaeological Science, jazz, 
called Early Evidence for Horse Utilization and the Eurasian Steps in the Case of the Novoyloivsky II Cemetery in Kazakhstan links the Sintashta culture to a key component of the Indo-Aryan experience. I was looking at that name again. So Novoyloivsky. It's a lot of letters. This paper reports the results of a zooarchaeological and archaeological studies of two late Bronze Age horses from Corgan 5. Remember, that's a, a tumulus. It's a tomb, mm-hmm. a, a burial um, of this cemetery, cemetery in the Kustane region in the Republic of Kazakhstan. The study documents the key period in the development of horse utilization during the Bronze Age and elaborates on the chronology of this process by applying the radiocarbon dating. We conclude that the key horsemanship practices were already fully established during the Bronze Age, as horse remains demonstrate evidence for bridling, which can be linked to the utilization of bridles with cheek pieces and soft bits. No, soft bits. Like the bits that are placed. I know. Okay. I like saying soft bits. Okay. (laughs) The squishy. Um, (laughs) If these horses were used for riding, the radiocarbon age of the complex, um, calendar dates of around 1890 to 1774 BCE mm-hmm. pushes the gradual shift from chariot to horseback riding towards the beginning of the second millennium BCE. Hmm. So moving forward in time um, at Alex listener, Alex's behest, let's explore the Andronovo connection a little further. Santashta, not same, same Andronovo related. Uh, they used to be part of the same. They Sintashi used to be part of the Andronovo complex, but it actually got. got they're like, no, they're distinct enough that it's. Their and own all thing. of these things describe just sort of groups of material stuff that are thought to have been that are thought to be sort of representative of of a cohesive group of people. Yeah, over okay. a huge area, like mm-hmm. huge, because I cannot, I cannot express to you adequately how big central asia is it's really so very big it's so big um i feel like i drove across half of it but i really didn't i just felt like it (laughs) long car Um, rides are like that (laughs) um so let's revisit the idea of the unknown bmax substratum language with with whose loan words those vedic texts abound according to asco parpola so okay. Sanskrit specialist Alexander Lobotsky, who's this is his game, Sanskrit. Um, he he presented the paper. What language was spoken by the people of the Bactria Margiana archaeological complex? Oh, so um, handy. In a festschrift that was published this year. And for those of you who aren't in academia, a festschrift, like it's it's German. Das ist ein German word. Yeah. So it means like party papers. And so what happens when you are... Um, <laughs> It sounds more fun than it is. Towards not necessarily the end of of a a scholar's career, but sort of like when they've like been in the the field for decades and it's sort of like if perhaps they're retiring or if perhaps they're turning 70 or something like that, they will have a festschrift, which will be a, a, a conference where they get together your colleagues, your former students, like all of these people, and they present papers that touch on the different aspects of your field that you've affected mm-hmm. and so it's, it's like a nice. really I've, I've been to a couple and they're really nice and so i'm gonna read kind of a long excerpt from this but it's really interesting Analysis of the vocabulary of the Indo-Iranian languages shows that the Aryans were nomadic pastoralists and can be identified with the Andronovo steppe culture. 
put it put it out there pretty fast. Um, Although they could in no way have been involved in the foundation of the BMAC civilization, the Aryans were in Central Asia at the beginning of the second millennium BCE and maintained close contacts with the people of Bactria and Margiana, who were culturally much more advanced in some areas. These contacts led to a large number of loanwords in the Proto-Indo-Iranian language. In this way, we were able to compile a list of BMAC words, albeit refracted by the prism of borrowing. Mm. It's just a nice turn of phrase. Of course, the next obvious question is whether we can determine what language it was on the basis of this list. Unfortunately, all attempts so far have been in vain. These words do not resemble any other known language. There is yet another way to identify the phonetic and grammatical peculiarities of the list and try to compare them with existing languages. But even here, the the efforts of linguists have not led to the desired result with one exception. The linguistic peculiarities of the list fully coincide with peculiarities of words borrowed by Indo-Aryans after their separation from the Iranians, that is, those words that were borrowed into Sanskrit when future Indians crossed the Hindu Kush and settled in the Punjab in present-day Pakistan. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. If we look at this state of affairs with the viewpoint of Sanskrit, we can discern two different layers of loan words. One of the Indo-Iranian stage, shared with Iranian languages, and one of the Vedic stage, without Iranian cognates. These two layers are distinguished not only by the presence versus absence of Iranian cognates, but also by their semantics. I want to put Chris Donnelly on speed dial. I know. <laughs> Chris! Chris, help! The layer of agricultural terms in Vedic Sanskrit signals a change in the lifestyle of Indo-Aryans and the growing importance of agriculture in their subsistence, which is a lot like in the case of the the languages of the folks who interacted with the Mitanni, you get like horse words because you're doing the horsemanship. So you get stuff around. Right. Yeah. Like if you never encounter a saddle or a bridle, you're not going to have the words for saddle or bridle. But if you do, it's, it's, it's not, I mean, I don't know if this is a really strong compare, like, I don't know how great of a comparison this is, but think about um, words about working in kitchens and like being a chef. A lot of those come from French way because a lot of sort of culinary like Mm -hmm. um, institutions have been heavily influenced by the French way of doing things. Yeah. And because some of the first sort of books that were released about how to do kitchen yeah. were released in French. So it's it's sort of it's sort of like that. Like you get you get the words from who's who's giving you from the concepts oeuvre. behind it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I get it. So uh Lubotsky goes on to say, how can we account for the peculiar fact that the two layers look as if they have been borrowed from the same language or from two closely related languages? This would mean that the language spoken in the BMAC and the language which was spoken in the Swat Valley in the Punjab were quite similar, if not identical. The similarity of the two languages is all the more surprising as the BMAC and the Indus Valley culture do not have much in common archaeologically, and it seems unlikely that their inhabitants spoke the same language. A mystery. Because it is, like, the Indus Valley civilization, like Indus Valley stuff and BMAC stuff, not same, same. I just, I think it's interesting that... It's unlikely that their inhabitants spoke the same language, but we don't know what language. We still don't know what Indus Valley language I was. I, as I was reading this, I started to think about that. I'm like, don't, like, don't go that, do don't, you know? don't go down that path. 
It seems, therefore, worthwhile to seriously consider another scenario. It seems attractive to assume that the southward movement of the Indo-Aryans was simultaneous with the decline of the BMAC and was even triggered by it, since the profound changes in the economy of the BMAC would have forced the Indo-Aryan pastoralists to look for new markets. Excellent point. In the situation of an economic and political crisis, it is only to be expected that in their movement, the Indo-Aryans were joined by a sizable group of BMAC people who would bring their culture and the agricultural lifestyle with them. This scenario may account for the prolonged contacts of the Indo-Aryans and the BMAC people in the Swat Valley and the Punjab, and consequently for a large number of loanwords when the Indo-Aryans started to get settled and to learn agriculture. At the same time, it perfectly explains the fact that, per J.P. Mallory and D.Q. Adams' Encyclopedia of the Indo-European Culture, quote, intrusive BMAC culture is subsequently found further to the south in Iran, Afghanistan, and Pakistan, end quote. As far as we know from major people movements of the past, they are often multi-ethnic and a joint movement of Indo-Aryans and the BMAC people would not be surprising at all. It would be nice to hear from the geneticists whether this scenario is in line with the genetic evidence. In view of the many samples from the necropolis necropolis and Gonor, we will undoubtedly hear more about this issue in the future. Up till now, the linguistic scenarios have time and again found support in the analyses of ancient DNA. Will this also here be the case? Will it? Cliffhanger. An ad. (laughs) Da, da, da. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. We're back. You can stop hanging from that cliff now because we're going to talk about DNA. <laughs> and it's not something from Adam Rutherford. <laughs> I haven't talked about Adam Rutherford in weeks. There were so many co-authors on this study. Maybe he's in there. Maybe. That study is a 2019 piece in Science, The Formation of Human Populations in South and Central Asia. And it has uh, provided some of the genetic evidence that Lubatsky had mused about at the end of that paper. So here we go from that article. Oh, it really spoils it right up front, huh? I just I just I just cut out a section. There's like tons of tons of sections. But yeah, the the subheader. People of the BMAC were not a major source of ancestry for South Asians. I mean, I can just go ahead and not read this paragraph, right? <laughs> From Bronze Age Iran and Turan, we obtained genome-wide data for 84 ancient individuals from 3000 to 1400 BCE who lived in four urban sites of the Bactria Margiana Archaeological Complex, Bamak, and its immediate successors. 
the great majority of these individuals fall in a cluster genetically similar to the preceding groups in Tehran, consistent with the hypothesis that the BMAC coalesced from preceding pre-urban populations. Okay, and Tehran is, for these purposes, Central Asia? Yeah, I'm not saying Tehran. I'm saying Tehran. Yeah, Tehran, like as in Toronto. Yeah, sure. Let's do an that's opera reference. <laughs> but that's what it is. I know. I know. <laughs> we infer three primary genetic sources, early Iranian farmer-related ancestry and smaller proportions of Anatolian farmer and WSHG-related ancestry. Western steppe hunter-gatherer. Am I right? West Siberian hunter-gatherer. Ah, it was so close. A previously undescribed deep source of Eurasian ancestry represented in the study by three individuals from the forest zone of central Russia dated the 6th millennium BCE. Great, thanks. Our analyses reject the BMAC and the people who lived before them in Tehran as plausible major sources of ancestry for diverse ancient and modern South Asians by showing that their ratio of Anatolian farmer-related to Iranian farmer-related ancestry is too high for them to be a plausible source for South Asians. So we can just say that they took profiles from BMAC people and they took profiles from other people who could potentially contribute to the current genetic material of South Asian populations. And BMAC didn't fit. Yep. Which doesn't fit Lubotsky's scenario about how the languages may have worked. Has to be a different explanation. Yeah. Um, and I don't have it. No, I don't either. I don't think anyone Great. does right now. Okay. Great. I think, so, I think we're not on the hook for that. Forgive us, Alex, but we don't know. But as to talk about sort of a shared world or like similarities of world. Mm -hmm. It seems that there were some. Certainly. But it's also hard worlds. to assess. Yeah. It's hard to assess. Um, I really like your use of the word like world, like mm. what their world was like, because it, that implies like so much more sort of humanity and sort of yeah, experience than to just like their stuff. Yeah. And so unfortunately, mm -hmm. possibly because we're really going off the word of a lot of linguists who aren't thinking who... as much about, they are uh, really kind of positing things with the only evidence being backwards engineering of language, which is yeah. Which if not you want invalid, to read about that, certainly. there's some of that in the show notes. And gosh, wow, there's so many symbols. <laughs> yeah, and um, it's certainly a valid approach to trying to understand the movement of people, but it's not the only approach. And really, the best way to go about trying to do that kind of thing is to have as many lines of evidence as possible. Yeah. And for and this so, particular civilization, we're lacking in a lot of those lines of evidence. We're, well, we're, we're, and we're starting to have more as more mm -hmm. research is being done. But before we go, we have one last mystery to try to solve. So I guess it wasn't the, the Aryans coming through and burning everything down and throwing like gray pots at everyone from their Apparently horses. Apparently not. In a like no. Soma binge. So let's try to <laughs> suss out what deep cuts there. <laughs> I was just trying to think of everything. That what do we know about Aryans? Uh, gray pots, loved Soma, rode horses, nailed it. Worshipped fire. Oh, um, I that. So uh, let's try to suss out what ultimately led to the decline of the BMAC as it shifted away from it shifted away from what it had going on to different methods of organization and technology as part of the Bronze Age so-called collapse. It's never so, a collapse. It isn't. So, well, one major factor that has been proposed is climatic shifts, not unlike what we discussed back in our most recent Thanks Viking episode, mm -hmm. where I made things a little too real <laughs> for us in this present moment. 
<laughs> and I keep thinking back to it. And so this article is deceptively helpfully titled Climate Change and the Rise and Fall of the Oxus Civilization in Southern Central Asia. Yeah, which, I read that title and I had such hopes. And then immediately. Yeah. So <laughs> Oxus. Well, um, yeah. so let's translate that article. So this, art- this article says. Climatic causes are frequently assumed in the case of disappearance of past societies and cultural entities, revealing both the resilience and the vulnerability of complex societies to climate change, such as, for instance, the Akkad Empire, the Indus Civilization, the Maya Civilization. All right. They're still there. Or the Tiwanaku Civilization. So cool. We, mm-hmm. we talk about these things. So this is also true in the case of the Oxus civilization, <laughs> which occupied southern Central Asia and northeastern Iran during the Bronze Age between the second half of the fifth and the middle of the fourth millennium before present. Yep. Some scholars have tried to explain this fall by considering, quote, a disturbance of the equilibrium of the ecosocial system induced by the growing aridity of the climate and by the resultant decline in agroclimatic potential. Wow, I just took a little trip to Downton Abbey just then. Potential. Is that you? <laughs> Potential. So, um, okay. To translate. That means <laughs> climate change, which is in fact real, often affects the ability of polities to grow adequate food supplies for its population. Especially if this is like a densely pop. If you're in like an urban environment. Yeah, there's a lot, you of, a lot of You need a lot of food. A lot of people. Yeah. Um, and in a small place. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah. So, if the climate shifts towards conditions that make it harder to grow food, the economy is less stable. Sometimes, climate and other factors add up to a tipping point where the population is no longer able to feed itself, and that's when we typically see evidence in the archaeological record that corresponds with ideas of decline or collapse. So, we have to say it in all caps. I know. Collapse. Um, So, the article says, As one of the driest areas in the world... Can't agree. Uh, Southern Central Asia is undergoing the influence of different climatic systems at different space and time scales, but presently dominated by prevailing winds from the West, so-called westerlies. It belongs to the desert climatic zones with semi-arid to arid climate. (laughs) You've got a semi-arid climate in your mouth right now. (laughs) Sorry. Characterized muscle. Yeah, also that I just coughed like a toddler. (laughs) Um, characterized by low rainfall from the end of fall to mid-spring and a maximum exposure to the sun and high temperatures the rest of the year. 90% of this area receives less than 400 millimeters of precipitation per year, which makes it a desert. Sure does. Translation, this area is tough for agriculture just from the get-go because of the regional climate, which again... Is dry. Desert. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, okay, hopefully we can get through this together. Now, the article is saying, despite the aridity, uh, Southern Central Asia has a long history of sedentism based on an agro-pastoral economy since the Neolithic, necessarily determined by water management. Most of the population lived along the banks of rivers or in the mountain foothills, which were better suited for agricultural use, while the climatic conditions in the mountainous areas were adequate for livestock breeding and dry agriculture. And so dry agriculture is where you don't need irrigation. Yeah. It's where you let the rain do it. It's not like zero scaping. Uh, (laughs) 
in in the Bronze Age, the Oxus civilization developed between roughly 4250 and 3350 before present. Dry agriculture just sounds like, and here we grow dust. (laughs) (laughs) From around 3750 before present onwards sucks <laughs> just doing the math um the oxus civilization progressively underwent major sociocultural transformations the last cultural features related to it disappeared around you can just say years ago oh yeah i sure can <laughs> 3400 years ago with the manifestation of new significant changes identified as the beginning of the early iron age this long period of change has often been perceived as the collapse of the previous urban system in consequence, uh, the aridification process would have been modif- would have modified the courses of the rivers, depleted the water supply, and reduced the agricultural land potential. It would have involved a demographical pressure, causing a reduction in population density, thus leading to depopulation and a shift in settlement patterns. This hypothesis was consolidated by the first results on the periodization of different Bronze Age sites, which has now been proven to be incorrect. Uh-huh. At that time... The chronological overview suggested that the evidence of non-contemporaneous independent groups of sites called oases, okay, okay. Uh, whose successive occupation followed the retraction of the alluvial fan to the south, up downstream, upstream, with the desiccation of channels. So, okay, basically, when the climate got drier, larger settlements broke down because of the pressures we talked about above, and people moved in smaller groups to settle where the water was. And so as the river shifted course, people followed and, and also as the rivers dried up, because I, as I said at the beginning of the episode six hours ago, the rivers just sort of like trail, like they just sort of eventually fizzle out in the desert. But they do feed the oases. So they ended up hanging out around oases and oasis yeah. sites. And so we can also see the sediment records that show us how the river shifted course over time. And that lines up with where people were living at the time. So... To sum that up, the people who were settling in Bactria during the Bronze Age were very good at managing land effectively in spite of pretty dry conditions to begin with. They built irrigation systems and were able to grow a civilization that supported itself with a mix of agriculture and pastoralism. Or when the climate agro-pastoralism. Sh- <laughs> yes. So when the climate shifted around 4,000 years ago, it made conditions much drier, which affected local rivers and consequently those irrigation systems. It was no longer sustainable to have large settlements, so the population fragmented into smaller settlements settlements built near water sources and like ones that were sustainable. Yeah. Um, As the river paths changed over time, people moved to retain access to water. Sensible. We know this from lots of archaeological proxies like sedimentology, geology, plant remains, so that we know what was growing Mm -hmm. and material culture and and architecture left behind. So that's it. That's the article. And so it makes sense because, once again, it wasn't a collapse. It was just a, like, reorganization. And I would like to think that society, like, a civilization or a society is, if it is living and, like, if people are living lives and, like, reproducing and carrying on traditions, I think that is much more successful than just, like, having large buildings and, like irrigation and stuff so it's sort of like what are we looking at are we looking for sort of like monumental ideas of what civilization is or are we looking at like actual like continuity yeah and so with that let us wave goodbye to each other and goodbye to victor sarianiti 
as I read the last paragraph <laughs> of that Discover article, which is is tough and I hate it, but I also love it because it is. Just I love very... the visuals. I hate the con- like the I hate the yeah. connotations. Yeah, or the yeah. Like, historical yeah. background. I love yeah. the pros, hate the implications, but it's, there we go. it's something it. that really. Um, it really speaks to me because this is a lot to your aesthetic. No, it, no it's, it's a, I, I had a very similar experience in Central Asia. Ah. So it says, I thought you were just talking excav- about how much you like cushions. I do love cushions. <laughs> on the excavation teams last night at Gono for the season, we picnic in the desert, reclining on rugs and pillows like Turkomans, toasting with vodka like Russians and enjoying roast lamb as Oxus shepherds no doubt did four millennia ago. Here you understand who you are, Serenity says, lying like a pasha on his cushions. A stocky and robust man, he looks worn, almost frail, in the twilight. He says, I am one of those who cannot go on living without the desert. There is no place like this in the world. I want to be buried here. Duh. I love it. It's good. Yeah, so. Well, Alex, we hope we at least were interesting for an hour or so. I'm not sure we answered any questions. I have but more was, than I started yeah. out with, but I enjoyed learning about this stuff. And so, yeah. So thanks, Alex, for recommending this. Thank I you. I wanted to talk about BMAC for a long time. If you still have questions. Hit us we up. Do another, we yeah. will do another episode sometime. But uh, thank you. And thank you all for listening. Yes, thank you. We will be back in your ears soon with new episodes, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and wherever else you like to get your pods. Yeah. And we're on social media. You can find us on Facebook. We're the Dirt Podcast. We are on Twitter at Dirt, Dirt Podcast. And we're on Instagram at the Dirt Pod. Yes, you got it. And we are on, good, two two years and some, so I finally <laughs> figured it out. Um, and all of that and more, including how you can sponsor your very own episode about something else that we may not answer, over at thedirtpod.com. Yeah. And hey, if you haven't already, um, maybe go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us some stars and a review. And if you do that, we might read it at the top of the show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. Thanks, everybody. We love you. Bye. Bye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.